Some of you know I was, for 11 years, I was a pastor of student ministries at Colonial Baptist Church on the other corner of Cary. And uh, in the year 2000, I was looking for an assistant in student ministry. We did student ministry a little bit differently at Colonial. We didn't have a middle school pastor and a high school pastor. We kind of wanted to be involved in that whole season of life from middle school to high school. And so I was looking for an assistant, and I had, I had combed through. You know, lots of people want to live in North Carolina, right? And I remember putting a, a, an ad in Youth Specialties Magazine. I don't know if I ever told you this, Jerry. And I had literally a stack of resumes on my desk like this. And I would talk to these guys, meet with these guys. One guy, I remember picking him up at the airport. And like as soon as he got in my car, we weren't to the next terminal. And I went, this is never going to work. And the dude was staying at my house all weekend long. <laughs> going, this is going to be a long weekend because I know he's not the guy. <laughs> and finally, I got a resume from a friend of mine up in Pennsylvania who said, hey, I really want you to check this guy out. And his name was Jerry Hines and his wife, Becca. And they came down to Cary and we spent the weekend together. And Diana said, well, what do you think? And I said, um, well, he'll never really be one of my best friends, probably. But I said, you know, I, I think he's a good guy and his wife's really sweet and I think they'll do a good job. And I don't think he's going to hurt anything. And so, <laughs> literally, these were my thoughts, of which I share now. And uh, I said, so, you know, after going through all this and all these guys, I mean, I'm just tired. I just we got to get somebody, and so I'm just going to hire him. Wow. And, uh, yeah, I've never, wow. I've, never, I've wow. never heard that part of the yeah, story Yeah, I'm just going to hire him. Wow. <laughs> and here's the interesting thing. Here's a good side to the story. The interesting thing is that uh, five years later, as Jerry and Becca left to moved to the suburbs of Detroit for Jerry to be a, a head student ministry guy there. I can honestly say that in 25 years of pastoral ministry, Jerry was one of the best decisions I ever made as far as staff. Uh, we've got a lot of those, by the way, right now on our staff. We've made a lot of great decisions. But Jerry, I grew to love him. In fact, in 2005, he came to me. I'll never forget him coming to me and saying, hey, I got this opportunity. This church contacted me. And I'm like, well, tell him, no, you're not interested. You, you know, you're not available. And he told me the name of the church. And I had actually, his pastor's son had married one of the girls in my student ministry. And I did their wedding. I'd gotten to know this pastor. And I really liked him a lot. And I'm like, I can't even say bad things about this guy because I like this guy. I'd go work for this guy. And so Jerry left in 2005 and did not follow God's will for his life, but he left anyway. And <laughs> Actually, he did. He did. It was obviously God's will for his life. And God's given Jerry and Becca just an incredible uh, ministry up at Woodside Bible Church in Troy, Michigan. They have influenced and impacted the lives of hundreds and hundreds of high school kids. I had an opportunity last fall when I was up there watching my beloved Cornhuskers to go to his student ministry on Sunday night, and what a thrill it was just to see how God continues to use not only Jerry, but uh, his wife, Becca. Becca, why don't you stand so people can see you as well. It's Becca. And uh, Jerry and Becca will be lifelong friends uh, of Diana and I. And um, so I asked him uh, several weeks ago if he would come and uh, just share the word with you this morning, and he agreed to do so. And uh, I know you're going to enjoy him as he shares this morning. Jerry. Awesome. Thanks, Brian. Thanks. Hey, uh, well, if there's an opportunity to come down to North Carolina and we live in Michigan, you want to take that opportunity, right? Yeah, so it's a much different world up there, but it's a great world. Thank you so much for those words, Brian. And it was 
amazing serving under you at Colonial and seeing your leadership and just, uh, again, taking a chance on me. Sorry to make that good of an impression, but um, <laughs> taking a chance on me. So we learned so much under him and many others that are here now that were on our team. So it's really cool. Anytime we come back here, it's like a reunion of sorts. But man, what a joy to be here with you guys. Are you wide awake and alert? Ready to dive in? Sweet. Okay, good. Well, listen, uh, experts tell us that typically within the first 60 seconds of you hearing a communicator get up and introduce a certain topic, within the first 60 seconds, you are going to make a mental decision about whether or not you are going to believe what that person has to say. That's how important first impressions are, according to psychologists and communication experts. First impressions are huge. I remember one time I did make a very favorable first impression, and it involved when I was dating uh, my girlfriend, my wife now, but my girlfriend at the time in Bible college. She was a sassy little freshman, and I was a junior upperclassman. And uh, I noticed her strutting around on campus and was rather interested. So we started to hang out a little bit, and it was that moment, some of you guys will remember, that moment where you go out with the parents for the first time, like the serious moment, like new potential boyfriend moment. Okay, so they drove down from upstate New York, and uh, I remember they picked us up. They picked me up outside of my dorm, and I go into the minivan, and we were going to go for a delicious meal at Pizza Hut. I don't know how you feel about the Pizza Hut, but in uh, Scranton, Pennsylvania, where we went to school, that was that was the place to be, right? So we were going to Pizza Hut for a nice dinner. I get in. Not only is there mom and dad there, but there's a couple of older brothers there. Okay, there was Becca, which made me feel good. And then there was even, uh, I believe, a couple of grandparents in the mix. So this is like the full on, you know, uh, let's, let's see what this guy's made of. So we're going, driving down, and I remember, and they were going around, going down around the whole minivan, and they were telling jokes, like, does anybody tell jokes anymore? Like, I don't think jokes are funny. I don't really know any jokes. But I'm feeling the pressure to perform because they're going down and everybody's doing it. And I can see the dad, like, looking at me in the rearview mirror, you know, as he's driving. And I'm like, uh, <laughs> um, okay, I've got one. So everybody gets really quiet. And this is the way the joke is supposed to go. It's like, knock, knock. The interrupting cow it's stupid I know it's stupid but again all jokes are stupid in my mind but that was the one I was going to come to the table this is the presentation this is the one I'm feeling the pressure so I got to do it and so I'm like okay everybody here here I, I, <laughs> I kind of know one so here's what I do I'm like all right knock knock and they're all like who's there and I go the interrupting elephant and they're all like the interrupting elephant, and all of a sudden, everything starts to go in slow motion. Because I'm like, that's not the way the joke goes. That's not, the interrupting elephant, what does an elephant even do? So they're all like, the interrupting elephant, and I know I gotta do something, I'm feeling the pressure, so I'm just like, Mah! I don't know if this was a trunk or, I don't even know what I was doing, and everybody was completely silent. Chirp, chirp. And Becca's like, Jer, I think you mean the interrupting cow. And uh, that is what I meant. So that was a bad first impression. 
Yeah, but anyway, hopefully we won't have any of that here this morning. I want you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Philippians chapter 3. The book of Philippians chapter 3. While you're turning there, just a little bit of background information so you could know us a little bit better. My wife and I have been married, it's going to be 16 years in, uh, in June, which is pretty sweet. And we've got three kids. My daughter, Autumn, is 12 my son, Caden, is 10, and then I have another daughter named Madison. She's seven, and she's, uh, you know, they're, they're, it's so much fun in our, in our house. Those of you that have kids, you know that it's a lot of work, and it's a lot of heartache, but, uh, but it's a lot of fun as well to see them growing and curious about things and learning. And just a few months ago, I had a very interesting conversation with Madison, our seven-year-old. She came up to me with her big blue eyes. She goes, Dad, what does it mean when someone sticks up their middle finger and it was just one of those moments where as a parent, like, well, we don't want to really tell her the whole deal because that could go south quick. But, you know, you want to let her know. So I'm like, well, Maddie, I'm like, that's just a really, really mean thing to do. And basically it means I hate you very much, but you should never do it. And it's really bad. And so you can see like her, you know, cogs are turning in my She's like, well, could we stick up our middle finger at the devil? And I'm like, um, that's a tricky theological point, actually. Because believe me, there have been times where I've wanted to, you know. But it's, it's just so neat to see, uh, to see children growing and, and uh, to be experiencing life together. Well, I, I got to admit to you, it was a little bit of a struggle to think about what to, what to speak on. You know, because when it's just a one-time shot, it's a little bit different than when you're in the middle of a series and you can just build on something. But what I landed on, what I really felt God wanted me to share here from Philippians 3 was, is, a, is, a, is a passage that I've kind of taken on as one of those life verses. One of those ones that you just kind of hold up as a mantra and as a banner that you want to be remembered by. And essentially, by way of background, just to bring us up to speed, Paul was writing this letter from prison. And I know for some of us that have been around church for a long time, you know, we kind of hear that. And so many of his letters he wrote from prison. He was in prison a lot, sometimes for years at a time. But I just want us to think about that for a second. Okay, because I want, I want us to think about the context. I want to think about the author and what was going through his mind at this moment. Because here's Paul, who was a man that was persecuting the church that was as far away from God as you could possibly be. Jesus met him on the road to Damascus in a miraculous interaction and transformed his life, turned him around, set him loose to be his sounding board to the Jews and to the Gentiles and all over, sharing this great, glorious gospel. Jesus Christ, Messiah, new way to live, kingdom of God is here. Paul is the guy sharing that. And yet, he's in prison. So just think about what he was thinking and what he was going through at this point in time. Sitting there in the darkness day after day, month after month, at times year after year. Just imagine what was going through his mind. Well, God, this sure is awesome. I mean, thanks for this. You know, you gave me a passion. You gave me a burden to share your word and a lot of good that's doing now. These are the prime years of my life, God. Don't you know that? Remember, you gave me this zeal and this ability to speak and it's just being wasted. So Paul was going through a lot 
even at the very time of this writing. And one of the main themes that you see as you go through this book is two words that Paul is trying to convince us that we need to understand, and those are the words joy and confidence. It's a fun little exercise sometimes just to go through this book. It's only, it's only four chapters, but just underline or highlight every time you see the word joy and every time you see the word confidence. Just imagine Paul. If anybody could be somebody that didn't have a whole lot of joy, it would be him. And if there's anybody, somebody that, if there's anybody that would be the opposite of someone that's confident and trusting in God and, and, and like excited about the future, it would be him at this point, right? Imagine how anxious he must have been, not even knowing if he would live another day. Talk about not being confident, but yet the power of the Spirit of God was compelling him to make these truths real in his own life. And now he's sharing that to this group of people, the Philippians that met in a house in a big gathering like this. And now he's got something for us today as well to share. But here in Philippians chapter 3, let's just go ahead and start reading in verse 1. Paul says, finally, my brothers. We're coming to the tail end of what he's got to say. This is the pinnacle. This is the apex. He's like, listen up, guys. I want to share what this letter is really all about right now. So listen up. He says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. There's that word again, right? To write the same thing to you is no trouble for me. It is safe for you. I'm going to pound this truth home. I want you to be joyful. I want you to be confident. I want you to really understand what you're living for. Skip down to verse 4. Paul says, I myself have reason for confidence. There's that word, in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he's got reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And basically, Paul is going to be laying out an argument to them that says, here is why we should have motivation to live. And in verse 7 is the verse that I've held as my mantra and I've wrapped my arms around and it's rocked my world so many times. Verse 7 says this. Paul says, here's the solution. Whatever gain I had, I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. Now just a quick little side note. Sometimes God has a way of humbling us when we get too high on ourselves. And this was my case my senior year in high school. I went to a public school. I played football and basketball and baseball. And I was a pretty good guy, a good dude. Trying to live for God. You know, had a decent testimony. And when it came that time, for some of you maybe that are seniors here, where you got your, your, um, your, your senior picture, and in my high school, you could have like a certain number of lines underneath to write whatever you want, whether it's thanks to your parents or mention friends' names or whatever you want to be remembered by. You had like four or five lines. So I said, you know what? I want to I wanna make an impression on this school, and I want to leave a legacy, so I'm going to leave my life verse. Philippians chapter 3, verse 7. And so I remember writing that down there and handing that in. And that yearbook came out a few months later. And I remember opening that up and getting to that page and seeing my mugshot right there. And there it is. And yeah, all praise be to Jesus in my life verse. Philippians 3, we're supposed to say verse 7. And I don't know what happened to this day. I don't know if it was my sloppy handwriting and the 7 looked like something else. I don't know if they just typed it up wrong. 
but it said Philippians chapter 3, verse 5, that says, Circumcised on the eighth day, a people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews. And it's one of those moments where you're like, oh yeah, huh? What? What does is, what is verse 5 say? That was before, you know, the iPhones and everything where you can just call it up real quick and I read that and my heart just sank down to my stinking feet as I read that little tale. <laughs> so anyway, but redemption has happened because I'm here with you and we're talking about the real life verse, okay? But what's going on here? Paul is saying, hey, you know what? I've learned something. I've been stuck in this prison. This isn't the first time that I've been here, but I've shared with you in chapter one and chapter two about where real joy is found and that our confidence comes from God. You know, Philippians 1 verse six, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. It doesn't depend on us, so you can have confidence in that. Church of Philippi, he says, but I've learned something in this darkness and in this time. And what I've learned is all the things that I once thought were gain, I now count them as a loss. And in verse 1 through verse 6, he outlines what he's talking about. And basically, Paul, if there was ever a man in, in the world's eyes that would have been seen as successful, he would have been the guy. That's what it's talking about in verse 5 a Hebrew of Hebrews. He had the right pedigree. He had the right reputation. He had the right education. It says, as to the law, I was a Pharisee. I was trained up in all the ways of the Torah, in the history and everything else. And I'm climbing my way up the ladder of success and of reputation. And by anybody else's standards, I had it made. Those are the things that were gained to me. But Paul says, all of those things now, what everybody else said, what everybody else thought, all the things that I had accomplished, all the things that I was chasing after, Paul says, I now consider them as a loss in view of knowing Christ Jesus. And I think that's a good word for us here this morning. I want to ask you a question. I want, I want you to think about what are the things that you are pursuing, that you are chasing after, that your heart is desiring? What gets you excited to get up in the morning? What keeps you up late at night? What are the things that you spend your finances on? What are the things that you spend your time doing? What are the things that you do that when you're doing them, you completely lose track of time? Those are the things that we're worshiping. Those are the things that we're pursuing. Those are the things that we're holding as gain in our lives. And I don't know what that looks like for you. Maybe for some of you, it's, it's hanging on what other people say, what, what other people think. And the way you dress, the way you do, how you talk, how you act, what you try and accomplish is all to just impress other people, maybe at your job, you're just so driven by getting that next promotion or by landing that deal or whatever it is, getting more money in the bank. How does your portfolio look? Maybe it's possessions. Maybe it's what your house looks like. Maybe it's comparing you to your neighbors. Whatever it is, all those things 
Paul is saying that we're chasing after in comparison to knowing Christ, those things are a loss. And that word know here that's mentioned is, is a very unique word. It's the Greek word gnosko. And it carries along the idea of not just information, but it carries along the idea of an intimate, personal knowledge. Spending time with a relational kind of knowledge. Husband and wives that are here, you know your spouse in a much different way than you did on your first date. You spent time together, you've lived together, you've fought with each other, you've, you've romanced and pursued each other. That's gnosko. Parents with children. And you've seen them at their worst, you've seen them when they're sick, you've seen them and been proud of them when they've succeeded. You've shared those life moments together. That's what it means to know somebody like that. And Jesus says, that is the kind of knowledge that I have. Paul says, that is the knowledge I have with Jesus that kind of intimate relational knowledge in this, in comparison to all of that, blows them away. And you think about Jesus and, and how he even revealed himself to Paul. We need to come to the understanding here this morning that, that maybe you're here and you know Jesus as your Savior. You've got a relationship. Maybe you're here this morning and you're just kind of checking things out. Maybe you haven't really bought in and you're just curious and everything. Well, wherever you are this morning in that spectrum, you need to recognize that Jesus knows you. Right, even with the Apostle Paul, remember, Jesus was pursuing him and met him on the road and, and he called him by name. He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Even though he was living in darkness, even though he was a Jesus hater and persecuting people that followed after him, Jesus was still pursuing and chasing after. He's like, I know you and I know what you could be and I'm just coming after you. Called him by name. And Saul was like, uh, who are you? I don't know who you are. You apparently know me. I don't know who you are, but what's going on? And Jesus said, I'm the one that you've been persecuting. And he changed his life. According to Psalm 139, God knows us intimately, it says in that beautiful passage, even when we were being formed in the very depths, even as a baby in the womb, God was working, crafting, knitting us together. He knows us. And now Paul's saying, you've known me, now I know you, and this is far better than that. But it goes even deeper than that. Let's keep on reading here in verse eight. He says, indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, and for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them all as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. So again, here's Paul in a prison cell with nothing Barely even his health, beaten undoubtedly on a daily basis. It's like, man, I remember back in those days when I was successful and I was respected and I had physical possessions and I had all this stuff. But he's like, nope, I consider all that as the word in here is rubbish. I told the first service, if it says that in your Bible, you need to take this, rip it out, go back to the Christian bookstore, ask for your money back, because that's not a good translation. Don't literally do that, but you understand what I'm saying. You know what the real word is in the Greek? Skubulon. It's a fun little word. You know what it means? Doo-doo. Poopy. 
It's a strong word. And if you were to say that at a dinner party 2,000 years ago, parents would close their kids' ears. You know, it was a strong, powerful, offensive word. But Paul's like, yeah, it is offensive. Because all those other things that we're chasing after, they stink. They reek. They're putrid in comparison to knowing Jesus in the way that I know him. Paul says, even deeper, verse 9, he says, and, he says, in order that I may gain Christ, verse 9, and to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So it's not all these accolades, not all these successes, not any of these trinkets that I can accomplish in this world and say, hey God, look, isn't this impressive? Look at all that I've done. Look at the Bible studies I've done. Look at the mission trips that I've gone on. Look at all the money that I've given. All those things are great, but Paul's saying, that's not where the righteousness comes from. Not by things that I'm doing in my physical body, but my righteousness comes because I am found in in him and my righteousness comes through faith and it's God's righteousness living in me amen that'll blow your mind that's not my abilities it's not anything that I have to offer it's God's righteousness in me and my responsibility is just to look for opportunities to live that out and check out this tale end he says in verse 10 that I may know him there's that word again. And the power of his re- resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him even in his death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection. So Paul's saying, yep, I know God. We got this relationship. We've got this going on and it is valuable, far more valuable than any of that. But Paul says, I want to know Jesus in his sufferings. And so here's the point. Some here this morning know what I'm talking about when I talk about suffering. I know some of your stories. I've got relationships with some of you, and I know some of those stories. But for, for many here, when you talk about sufferings, you could have quite a story to tell. And what Paul's saying here is, I want to know Jesus in my suffering. So where I am right now with uncertainty, with the temptation just to be negative and a temptation to dwell on my circumstances rather than my Savior, he says, Jesus, I want to know you even in this. Because when we are down and when we are broken and when we are groping around in the darkness, we experience an intimacy with God that would not have been possible if everything was the way we think it should be. So maybe you're here this morning and you're right in the middle of a valley. You're right in the middle of darkness. I'm just throwing out the hope to you right now that Jesus wants to meet you in those sufferings. He wants to be there with you in those sufferings. And even in that, Paul says, because I want to know you in the power of your resurrection. 
Because Jesus, you suffered, and I'm suffering right now, and I want you to be here with me. But beyond that, not just getting through all this, but I want to know the same power that God used to raise Jesus from the grave, according to Romans chapter 8. I want to know that in me. I want to know that same power, that resurrection, that overcoming power. That is the hope that Paul is holding on to. And you could just hear him pleading with these people, telling them it is worth it. Hang in there and recognize what the most valuable thing in life truly is. And when you think about Paul and you think about his economy and what he was going through and who he was doing it for, it's obvious why all the trinkets and the treasures and the finances weren't going to cut it. Because you know what the only thing that you're going to be able to take to heaven with you is going to be? People. People are the only thing that matter. And Paul was saying here that like, I could spend my whole life chasing after this stuff, getting all this applause, getting all this praise, and I don't want to show up before the, the judgment seat of Christ, before God, and say, hey, look, God, here's what I got for you. Trinkets, 401Ks, a nice house. I really did look pretty good with those clothes and that life on earth, didn't I? I watched every episode of that 24. Pretty exciting. I watched all the trilogy of Lord of the Rings. So how did you spend my time? How did you spend the time that I gave you, my son, my daughter? Not that there's anything wrong with any of that. But what I'm saying is Paul's heartbeat was all that other stuff can really take away from the most important thing, and that's people. Because in chapter 4, verse 1, after Paul lays out all of this, he says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and whom I long for, can't you just hear his heartbeat pouring out to them? He says, You are my joy and my crown. And that's significant because a crown is a reward in the context of Scripture in the New Testament. Anytime it talks about crowns, it's talking about when you get to heaven and you get rewarded. And Paul's saying, you know what I want? I want to be in front of God and I want to say, okay, God, well, here's what I did with my life. And you're ready for my reward, ready for my crowns. All right, well, you know what my crown is? You know what my reward is? You know what my love is? You know what I'm going to relish and cherish? is these people. With the time that you gave me on this earth, I wanted to impact and influence them. These are my crown and my joy. I don't need anything else. So for Paul, you see the dichotomy of living for earthly things versus living for what really matters most and elevating the worthless things like so many of us do with our affections and ignoring the priceless. People's stories are what matters most. Remember just a couple months ago, I was at a retreat with our student ministry and there was a girl, 17-year-old girl that we've been praying for, just a broken, awful, tragic home situation came we had our Saturday night session and we sent all the students out to spend time with God and came back and had a time to say, hey, if you made a decision and you went from death to life, we want you to raise your hand. We want you to come forward. And this girl came up sobbing. Her name was Nina. 
She said, I did it. I made the decision. I've invited Jesus into my brokenness. and I want to live for him. And I want to be a Christian. I know what it means. And I want it. And I said, that's awesome, Nina. I gave her a big hug. And I was tearing up with her. I said, tell me how that happened. Was it, was it, during, was it during the message that the speaker was, or was it during the prayer time, you know, like when we said that? Or was it during your quiet time by yourself that you just came back from? And she goes, no. The moment that I made that decision was during the song, Christ is Enough. I'm like, well, I don't understand. She's like, well, I was wrestling with these things. I'm looking at those words, and it says Christ is enough. Christ is enough. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. And she said, I was singing that, but that was my prayer at the same time. So it wasn't a sinner's prayer, but I was looking at that, and I'm like, Christ is enough, and I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. This is what I want. During the song is where she became a Christian. I said, I have never heard of anything like that in all of my years of ministry. That's unbelievable. Life changes what matters. I just want to throw out a couple of closing questions for you to think about with this passage. The first one is this. Who are you going to let control your joy and your confidence? Because either you can try and control it, and that probably won't work out a whole, uh, work out well. You can let the enemy try and control it because he's the one who's speaking out lies night after night, day after day, according to Revelation chapter 12. So he's going to try and cut down your joy and mess with your confidence constantly by whispering lies. Or you can let God control and influence your joy and your confidence. And finally, in knowing Jesus, if that truly is the priceless thing, are you going to allow yourself to be put in a situation where you are knowing Christ even through sufferings, even in darkness? Well, Paul has poured out his heart by saying it's worth it. I've been there. I've had that but this is so much better. Let's pray together. So our God and our Savior, we just thank you for this morning. And God, I don't know where this truth is going to land in every person here, but Father, I just pray that if there are some that have been running and pursuing the things of the outward, the things that don't matter, the things that will burn up, God, I just pray that even right now at this very moment, they would see the futility of it. They would see how those pursuits that take away from and minimize your glory just reek in his presence. And Jesus, we just pray that you would just give us a glimpse, just give us a taste of how wonderful and bountiful and satisfying it is to live a life for your glory. So change us with your word, God, this morning. We love you. In your son's name we pray.